Welcome to another episode of Games in Schools and Libraries. I'm Donald Dennis, and you can find me slogging through the internet as Walsfio. Today, I'm excited to bring on one of my favorite, favorite publisher guests who's joined us from time to time over on the Onboard Games podcast and has published some amazing games like Stroop and The Artem's Project. Uh, that would be Mark Spector of the Grand Gamers Guild. Hey, thanks for having me, Don. Thank you for joining us. Uh, I really wanted to get you on the show. You're, so your sponsor over at Onboard Games for that podcast. Proud uh, this, sponsor. Yay. Um, but because you're doing something that, that sort of falls a little bit more into the educational camp this time, I really wanted to drag you on to schools and libraries. And uh, so what, what do you got going on, uh, first of all, with Grand Gamers Guild, and second of all, over on Kickstarter? So generally speaking, Grand Gamers Guild is gearing up for our, uh, well, summer convention season. You have to plan for these things very far in advance. And in fact, I'll actually be, uh, well, kicking it off with a mini convention this weekend in Chicago. But that does feed into what I have going on right now, which is a game called Endangered on Kickstarter. Because the uh, event I'm going to this weekend in Chicago is sort of a house-based mini convention put on by the Meeple Keep. And... They've invited me down to get endangered onto the table and, you know, have their very robust population of local gamers uh, give it a shot and hopefully become backers. Nice. So how much longer does endangered go on for? Oh, I don't know. 18 days, 17 days left. So still plenty of time to gain ground. As of recording, about 18 days, probably about uh, 10 days uh, when this goes live. There you so, go. Uh, go and check that out. Uh, We'll talk a little bit more about Endangered here in a minute, because that's why I dragged sure. you onto the show. But let's tell our listeners a little bit about Stroop and some of your other games. What else does Grand Gamers Guild have to offer? Sure. So we are a pretty young company, only about three years old. And our very first game we published back in, uh, well, kickstarted in 2016, it came out in 2017 called Unreal Estate. Mm -hmm. That is a set collection game with a little bit of push your luck based on uh, just gorgeous fantasy houses designed by Jason Slingerland and art by Corinne Roberts. We followed that up with Stroop, which is probably our most well-known game, partly because it's based on a very real thing called the Stroop effect, which is that little mental hiccup you have when you see the word red written in blue ink or blue color and your brain is trying to understand exactly what's going on so jonathan schaefer designed that game it's a speed game and it um really does it's what i tell people is it's the thinkiest filler you'll ever play it really does set your brain on fire and it still it still does a great implementation of it uh, there have been at least one or two other copycats who haven't really added anything to it in fact they've made the i think not as good of a game. So uh, <laughs> this one, one of the reasons why I like Stroop. Thank you. Oh, one other really cool thing, just as an aside, we actually did do a deal. E even though Stroop is such an English-based game, um, which I won't go into, but point is that um, we actually had a Polish company publish their version of Stroop. So it was kind of cool to, to see that come to fruition and know that it uh, actually can be done in another language. We followed Stroop up with Pocket Ops, which is um, a light strategy game uh, set on sort of a tic-tac-toe chassis. And we added in a little bit of a deduction and some special powers, so it makes it a game that you can actually play and not, uh, not get frustrated by the deterministic nature of, of, of a base tic-tac-toe. Then we moved into some big games. Uh, Endeavor Age of Sail was a crazy big Kickstarter, Ooh. followed up by the Artemis Project, and now Endangered. And those are all... You know, sort of like uh, 
Where the others were sort of appetizers and desserts, these are your main course games. I still have not actually gotten my hands on the new um, Endeavor because oh, geez, yeah, Louise. it is uh, it's one that I want to play, but we'll we'll talk about that later. I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. you got to get yourself a library grant for some uh, <laughs> age of sale programming. <laughs> well, I, I do live uh, I do live in the Carolinas, coastal Carolina, so we love our pirates and uh, and exploration. So that that could happen. That could happen. Sounds good. That's all very interesting. But can you give us any secrets as to what's coming up from you in the future besides Endangered? Yeah, absolutely. So the next game we're planning after Endangered Mm. is an abstract strategy game called Gorinto. So it's designed by Ricky Yainer. He's a uh, first-time designer. At least he may have something else published before we get Gorinto out, but um, I believe this is his first signed design. And Gorinto is so. What happens is you have the you have five different elements, and it is very um, sort of firmly rooted in a uh, you know philosophical Buddhist based um, sort of uh, symbolic system. And each of those each of those elements will collect tiles in a very specific way when they're moved from a drafting row onto the board. Okay, and much like Kingdom Builder, there are different rules for every game. So there'll be two rules and there'll be two elements that guide the scoring. And then essentially when it's your turn, the game plays two to five. So when it's your turn, you pick an element from the drafting um, framework and then you move it onto the board. And based on where you put it, whatever row or column you put it in, you then collect other elements based on that. And then you're doing a tiny bit of engine building because when if, if I move a water tile, okay, which would allow me to collect across a row. Yep. If it's the first water tile I move, I can only collect one water tile. I'm sorry, I can only collect one tile. And if it's the um, if I have a water tile and I move a water tile, I can actually collect two tiles from the row. And I got to be honest, explaining the collection pattern is very very difficult. Mm. But once you see it in action, it's extremely simple. Oh, okay. And anyway, the goal the goal of the game is to collect as many tiles across all five elements as you can based on the um, the scoring rules for that game and based on the elements that will score in that game. Oh, okay. So hopefully, hopefully I've done that justice and not completely slaughtered it. Well, well, all righty then. So what would you say the design imperative or the or from Grand Gamers Guild, what is it that you are trying to get out of games or add to games when you're going to do your publishing? What are you looking for? Or what sure. kind? Of, what kind of? What kind of fence are you trying to put around your niche in the marketplace? All right, I think I lost you to some lag, but I think I know what you asked. So the driving ethos of the games that Grand Gamers Guild publishes is um is sort of encapsulated in my hashtag Game Night Go To, mm-hmm. in the sense that I want to publish such a swath of um broad games that you could spend the entire night with our games and not realize that you're playing titles that are all from the same company. So. Uh, again, Stroop is sort of a um, a brain-based speed game, and Unreal Estate is a uh, light set collection game, and Pocket Ops is a two-player strategy game. Endangered is cooperative. Um, Artemis Project is sort of middleweight strategy, and to be fair, Endeavor Age of Sail is also middleweight strategy, but in terms of the story that they're telling, 
um, dramatically, dramatically different. And uh, Artemis Project is based in outer space, and and um, Endeavor Age of Sail is based on Earth. Um, you know, hundreds of years ago. So we just want we want a wide, wide spectrum so that anyone who goes to our website or steps up to up to us at a convention can go. Oh, that interests me, even though that doesn't. Um, time will tell if it's a viable strategy. I mean, I do think it's a strategy that has been followed successfully in the past, mm -hmm. but it's also a very different board gaming market than it is in the past. And so we're still trying to still trying to find our ground, cultivate our audience and, you know, build up, build up a loyal following, regardless of what title we're putting out. We want to be known for good games, not for the hype that the Kickstarter platform brings, if that makes any sense. Right, right, right. How much do you educate yourself about the topics that you're putting games out on, like with Endeavor or Artemis Project, which is you know space mining and survival, and and uh, now with Endangered? Right. In terms of education, I would say my education on the topic is I don't know middleweight, but I've been really lucky in the sense that I have designers who have just dove into their subject matter really, really deeply. Um, and so when we're trying to tell a story, it's it's usually them that provides the foundation, and then I just kind of uh, nip and tuck as the case may be. Now, in the case of the Artemis Project, I'm a huge science fiction fan, and so I do believe that I had quite a quite a deep working knowledge of science fiction literature as well as movies to to draw on. But with respect to Endeavor: Age of Sail, and in particular the exploits which were added to the game quite specifically to give it more story, to give it more history built into the game. Um, the, the designers just went crazy. I mean, they really, <laughs> really dug in. And when you pull out those exploits, and I guess I should explain. So Endeavor came out originally as a base game that was wonderful and perfectly functional. But when we re-implemented it for the current edition, we wanted there to be more history in the game. And there are six regions in the game, and what we did with the exploits was we told another part of the story of the Age of Sail that highlighted a, a genuine history in between each of the regions. So in between the Far East and the Caribbean, in between India and Africa, in between North America and South America, and just a lot of, uh, of far-flung geographies that we don't typically learn about in U.S. history class or even in world history hmm. class. So... Uh, and again, just to give them credit, the uh, the designers really did all of that work. Now, with Endangered, boy, I'm going to sound like a really lazy publisher here. With Endangered, <laughs> Joe Hopkins, the designer, had been working on that for ye for years before uh, I engaged him, and um, and he really had his facts down. Now, one of the things that's really cool about Endangered is because it's not just a real issue, but it's also a current issue is that we wanted to make sure we were representing the, um, the activist and the conservation community correctly. Before we get there, tell, tell us what Endangered is. Give us the full spiel on it right now, and we can have context. Okay, fair enough. So Endangered is, the, uh, is a cooperative game, and it is the story of saving endangered species. And as we all know, there's no shortage of animals uh, threatened and endangered because of environmental changes, because of human misdeeds. And so in the base game, which represents the plight of both tigers as well as sea otters, both uh, endangered in their respective uh, geographies, mm -hmm. you take on the role of an activist. You could be a lobbyist or you could be a zoologist or you could be an environmental lawyer and you get special powers. 
And the goal of the game is to stave off environmental destruction, to uh, help the animals procreate, and eventually to persuade UN ambassadors through your through your gameplay to to enact legislation to save the animals. I have to say, though, I'm not sure that I'm excited about you making lawyers sympathetic people. That's yeah, yeah. I know, I know. It, there is a it, yeah. I hear, I hear what you're saying. My roommate, my roommate in grad school would now be shaking his fist at me because uh, we got along famously, and uh, and I still like to razz him about it nonetheless. But eh, whatever. Uh, so yeah, it's it's a very conscious effort to to shine a light on a potential issue. Well, not on a potential, on an actual issue. And yeah, uh, there are elements in it that I would not have expected. And of course, you are uh, you have the the stamp of approval of the Center for Biodiversity. Yes. Um, so to piggyback on on that, we um, we teamed up with the Center for Biological Diversity. They are a, a conservation group, and before they agreed to sign on, they asked to see the game. They wanted to make sure that we were representing the work that is done accurately, and so we sent them a prototype. And with with not even putting words in their in their mouth, uh, the woman who is my liaison to the group said that they loved it. They said that they felt it was a very accurate representation of what they go through. And it was really, really gratifying to, to know that Joe had put together a, a system that was so grounded in reality. I mean, obviously, games have to abstract their subject matter, right? Otherwise, they become real life. And that's why we play games, to get away from real life. Mm-hmm. But, um, but to hear you know, a game, uh, that the game really did its job so well was just, um, you know, it, it sort of solidified the deal that we knew we had something that was really special and different. Um, we play a lot of, you know, dark fantasy and science fiction and Western games, but to have a, you know, a real life game with real issues, you know, real stakes on the table, so to speak, uh, makes us feel really good. Right, right, right. So one of the things that I keep pushing, and I think it's probably sort of the feeling of, of everyone in inverse genius, uh, not just the schools and libraries is that, Uh, A game has to be a game first, and then it also can be educational, but if it's a bad game, it's not going to get played. But if it's a good game, it can be a great fun game, but it can also be educational, right? That's true. It feels like you've sort of hit that on the head, because I got to play Endangered a couple years ago with one of the hosts of the Dice Tower Network, uh, Mr. Eric Summerer, because apparently I like hanging out with Eric's, but... We had a lot of fun. I learned a little bit about, oh, these are some of the things that we have to have to care about or that might be going on on the whole conservation thing. And uh, so, yeah, good on you for being able to find a game that does both. Yeah, it was very, you know, educational games get a bad rap and deservedly so, because as you and I both know, most educational games are terrible. But this is a game first Mm -hmm. that will educate you. Not, not an educational game, if we can parse words that way. Now, I think that the state of educational games over the past five to six years, maybe even the past decade, much better than they were prior to that. But yes, by and large, the the, the ratios are still not in the favor of good educational games, Agreed. which is why I don't have many publishers as, uh, sponsoring this particular show. <laughs> <laughs> what are some of the key elements that, that go into making uh, endangered, you know, something that might fit into a classroom or a library? Sure. So I think, first of all, if we're talking extremely practically, it's playtime um, in the sense that, 
you know, classroom time is valuable, and there's almost even if it's even if it's an educational goal, there's only so much time uh, to be spent on playing games aside from you know what needs to get done. So this game we'll play in about an hour, um, and then you know you need to engage kids, right? Mm-hmm. So if we're going to get them to do something, they need to be interested. And I'm proud to say that we have some exceptional exceptional artwork, and I dare say that the cover with a big bold tiger on it is probably one of the most striking game covers I've seen in a really, really, really long time. Yes. So we have both a, we have an image that's going to draw people in and and a, and a framework, a time framework that'll keep them at the table and not overstay its welcome. Uh, it'll keep the people who are playing actively engaged and not, uh, you know, meandering off either from the table or into their electronic devices. Other than that, um, you know, most people seem to think, and, and, you know, take this with a grain of salt, I'm the publisher, I'm obviously very biased, but most people seem to think that as games go, it's a genuinely good game. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's a lot of good games out there, but, you know, there's a lot to manage. This is cooperative and not competitive, so it does foster teamwork and um, discussion. In fact, just today I answered a question from a uh, potential foreign backer who tried to ask about the, um, the alpha player problem. Which, you know, obviously is a pretty significant thing in the modern state of cooperative gaming and wanting to make sure that we did not put a game out there that suffered too mightily from Mm -hmm, that. mm -hmm. The question was, what did you do to to mitigate that? And there is a mechanism in the game by which you roll and place dice. And because die rolls are random and because you um, you can't activate a card unless you're playing a die higher than the one that's already on it. I mean, those two mechanisms combined really keep one person from quarterbacking the entire thing and when the role comes out it definitely becomes a discussion of hey what do we need to accomplish this turn knowing that we have only so many rounds left to do it and you have to manage destruction you have to manage where the animals are on the board you have to manage the influence that you're placing onto the ambassadors Mm -hmm. and you have to manage your card play so there's um quite a number of levers that the players can all pull together. And I've watched a number of games. And look, at the end of the day, someone who's a really strong alpha player is going to alpha player, right? Right. Um, they may even do that in competitive games. Where they go, <laughs> can you just do this, this, and this, and we can all get on with our lives? Get off my game table. But, um, yeah. Exactly, right? But, um, you know, I think we've implemented a system well, and a topic that really does foster discussion and not um, a single player's dominance. Right. And I would say that uh, one of the things is you know, give a man a hammer and everything's a nail. It's part of the kinds of things that, that help mitigate alpha player problems is each player has its own character, which has its own power. So they're going to be looking at the board sort of in a different, from a different focus. And, and that's, a, yeah. that's the kind of thing that helps. And, you know, alpha player problem got a lot worse with pandemic when everybody knew all the character types. Right. Uh, but still, sure. You get someone who knows the dispatcher and they will make that board sing in pandemic. Or if they if they are a medic extraordinaire, then they'll have a better idea of how to manage you know all the all the disease cubes on the board in that other game. And I sort of felt when I was playing it uh, with Eric Summer that uh, that we had different perspectives uh, as well as the person who's sitting across the side of the on the other side of the table, which I believe was you um, when we were playing. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. I, I was the number three in that game. Those kinds of unique powers, especially since in a cooperative game, you're not so worried about the balance between the players as long as it's the the engagement with the different players to the game, that uh, 
that it really sort of felt like, hey, I've got a different job to focus on. I need to worry about the grants or I need to worry about, you know, the legal aspects or what have you. And uh, and it sort of helps show what teamwork is all about, I guess. Right. And actually something that is uh, relatively new is that each role actually has mm-hmm. more than one special power as well as a semi-unique deck. So in as much as you might have played a role before, you might not have chosen the same special power and the deck of cards will come up randomly. You're not going to go through all of them in one game. So the actions you had available to you in your game playing the zoologist might not be available to the zoologist Hmm. in the next game you play. Interesting. Well, are there any stretch goals left on the uh, Kickstarter campaign that we haven't seen yet that, that you want to share with the audience? Oh, there are oodles of stretch goals. I, I can I will say honestly that having been a uh, beneficiary of some extraordinarily strong out of the gate twenty four funded in the first twenty four hours campaigns, um, endangered is definitely you know not shining like those are or those did. Um, we're gonna we're gonna fund still. We're only we're less than four thousand dollars away from funding. Um, but it's always nice to be able to. Uh, you know, sort of relax right. once the funding is done. But and that's part of the reason why I'm here is because we're still pushing. But yes, we have we have many more goals. We would like to include some more animal scenarios in the game. Those, as you can imagine, are relatively high stretch goals. We'd like to add in another role that's not yet present. We'd like to add in. Um, we'd like to upgrade the um, materials in the game. You know, better cardstock, um, linen finish, all those all those right. nice little flourishes. So um, we'll get there. At this point, we're seeing about a thousand dollar increase per day. And, um, and actually, um, I'm going to say this, you can cut it out if you want to, but we only just started our, our social media advertising yesterday. Um, endangered got flagged by Facebook as being a topic of national Mm. importance. And as a result, until I could verify my identity and who I was, um, our, our Facebook advertising was shut down. And so all of the, um, all of the, you know, targeted marketing you do mm-hmm. to try to reach out to groups who who might benefit from this game um, was put on hold ah. for an entire week, which you know is like a like a gut punch when you're trying to launch a Kickstarter. So I literally had to get them my um, I had to scan and submit my driver's license, and I had to receive a physical piece of mail with a verification code saying that I did I was who I was, and I did indeed live at the address that I said I lived at. Um, and I'll let you try to suss out why that might be, because mm. your guess is as good as mine. I'm going to blame the Russians. There, I That was where my mind went as well. And and, and probably, you know, not just, I mean, a- anyone who might um, be a malactor yeah, on, I guess on that's social true. media has, has brought us to this level of um, need. It for, is interesting. And that might be an inverse genius episode to talk about all of that. So. Uh, we, we may top you for something else, tap you for something else. Now, I've got a, a quick question. Yeah, Looking yeah, no down worries. on your your purchasing options, there's a stores and teachers set, but there's no librarians mentioned there. Yeah, and that's just because I'm a dummy. So essentially, I will gladly extend the activist pledge level to libraries who might want to buy it for their branch or maybe their branch system, yep. if that's the right word to use. So essentially for $99, you are making a down payment mm-hmm. on a total of eight copies. And at the end of the day, you'll end up paying uh, $30 per copy, uh, get one for free, and um, and then of course some shipping to get it to your location. So if you have a uh, you know, my local library branch system is is really large. I mean, there's like 20 branches. I guess that's large to me. Larger than mine. Um, so we can sort of accommodate any level 
uh, but 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 a minimum of of eight total copies for uh you know for your your brand. That's pretty exciting. All right, well you heard it here first that uh, hey librarians get some too. Uh, now exactly. is there a way that we can verify that hey uh, we are with a school or library or is it uh, just uh, we expect people who aren't part of that to not pledge that level? Well, we do expect people to be honest about it. Uh, however. I do go through sort of an internal verification. I will ask for a photo of your branch. I will ask for your your government ID number, your tax ID number, um, whatever is uh, you know pertinent to the type of organization you are, whether you're a retail store or a zoo or an aquarium or a library or a school. Um, all of those have some kind of you know identifying marker, and you know typically your email address where we correspond with one another is going to come from you know at donslibrary.com and not and not you know hotmail right. kind of a thing so uh i will be going through sort of a check and balance but at the end of the day truth be told if someone really wants to dupe the system and go to the lengths to do it i'm only <laughs> one man still a small company you're you're probably going to get away with it but um, what, you're, what you're hoping you for know, is there's a lot of people who are that excited about your game that that, that it's worth the effort for them to do the thing <laughs> yeah so. yeah right That'd be that. That'd be the other side of the coins, to be sure. But uh, you know, I, I've, we've done this before on other campaigns, and by and large, it's not a problem. Most people are honest. I think I've had one person accidentally pledge at the um, the, what was the word I'm looking for? Mm-hmm. At sort of the institutional level, um, by accident. And quite frankly, you know, at that point, you know, they're paying ninety nine dollars, so something would have to. Wouldn't that flip a switch in their head and make them go? That sounds like a lot for the mm-hmm. one game mm-hmm. I want. Mm-hmm. You know, so. Anyway, yeah, it doesn't happen well, too much. Well, when's the expected delivery date of this? Uh, right now we're looking at March of 2020. Ooh. We know based on our work with the Center for Biological Diversity that there were some images in the game that we want to change um, to to uh, kind of suit the palette, again, of the conservation community. So we'll definitely have some back-end artwork that needs to be cleaned up. And then, of course, if we stretch goal into another animal scenario, then there's definitely a lot more... Uh, back-end work that needs to be done. You know, an entire new deck for animals and things like that. So you're saying that if if I make this pledge, that we may have it in time for ShushCon next year? I think so. I, I uh, you know, I have the March 2020 delivery date was built in with with the idea that there would be some back-end artwork mm. that needed to be completed. So, yes, that is, that is my hope. As we all know, not everything goes according to plan. So, you know, well, fingers crossed. What I would like to do is sort of put my thumb down on this scale and say, even if it's not out and available then, if you've got a prototype or something that we can show off at ShushCon next year, I would love to be able to tell our listeners that, hey, you can come and see Endangered here, whether or not it's the final published copy, because um, I, I sort of want to uh, you know show it off because it's so pretty. Okay. Yeah, totally. I can do that for you. I take care of you, my friend. No worries. Uh, yeah, when you got him on mic, you've sort of got a gun to the head. So uh, I'm good with this. Um, but no, excellent. Uh, so not a problem. You heard it here first. Shushcon 2020 will have a some version of endangered. Maybe we'll make a giant sized edition with a giant stuffed tiger or something. Who knows? We'll we'll see what happens. You know, it's funny you should say that because we've all seen the giant games at conventions, and I did go through some mental gymnastics trying to figure out what it would be to sort of 3D print a, a um, you know, a plastic jungle, and then 3D print some some destruction tiles and everything like that, just for the visual impact that such a such a thing could have. But I've not gone down that mm-hmm. road. Well, as we've yet. got foam cutters, and we're not afraid to use them. 
We've got a laser cutter. We've got 3D printer. I think I think we could make this work, dude. That would be amazing. That would be that would be super cool. But we could talk about that another time, perhaps. Maybe we yeah. we sort we sort of have a a history of big games here. We've done Giant Catan. We did a Giant King of Tokyo. Uh, there was another large size game. Oh, we did a Giant Pokemon Scramble, which is kind of like going going gone, but with Pokemon. Um, so we've done some oversized stuff here at the con, as well as the Catan big game, where one year I think we had 18 or 20 people playing Catan at the same time in the same game. Um, so we wow. love big games here, and uh, and you may have been the just nominated for the next one. So we'll see what happens. But enough about me. I think that uh, we need to give them one last uh, explanation or sell, uh, or what's what's the one thing that you think that stands out the most besides that beautiful cover about why endangered water would not uh, be appropriate for their institution. What's the ages on it? I guess we'll start with that. Uh, so the ages right now are pretty much 10 and up, but with, you know, it's a cooperative game. So, so a savvy child gamer um, or someone who as a parent is willing to help sort of guide the conversation as the game takes place, you could definitely go down to eight. I think, right. It sort of felt of to me like you could play the whole game as a classroom. Um, if, you know, you had like an overhead projector or something where you could shoot it up on the wall and, and talk through the various elements. But that would be a multiple day sort of thing. Oh, that would be an amazing idea. But yeah, absolutely. Uh, are you doing any special promotions with the uh, Center for Biological Diversity or will they have information on their site that uh, that might supplement the material that's provided in the game? They're not going to have anything on their site about the game. Um, this mm-hmm. kind of came to fruition rather quickly. And so... Uh, they have put us out in their newsletter. They tweeted us, uh, tweeted about us last week, and there'll be more sort of social media to come from them. But certainly you can, you know, Google Center for Biological Diversity and learn all about them. Uh, insofar as, you know, their involvement and information on them, it's, it's all on the Kickstarter. And we do have the center supporter level, wherein by pledging an extra $20 above the base game, you can generate a copy that we're going to give oh. to them for educational purposes. Nice. And then, of course, you get your copy as well. Well, excellent. No, that, that's exciting. Yeah, we're exciting. super proud of that. I think a little bit of activism for something that affects everybody in the world, uh, not a bad thing. All right. Well, Mark, uh, could you give your bona fides one more time? Where can you be found on the internet? Uh, you know, a little bit about the Grand Gamers Guild, and then I'm going to shove you out the door and then help some patrons. So um, everything can be found at grandgamersguild.com. You can also look up Grand Gamers Guild on Facebook and on Twitter and Instagram, we are at Grand Gamers Guild, but you drop all the vowels. And if you want to take a look at the uh, Endangered campaign, just go to kickstarter.com and type Endangered in their search bar, and it'll take you right to it. And all the uh, the links and stuff will be in the show notes. Check that out. Um, I'd like to thank you, Mark, for joining us. I'd like to thank all of our listeners for staying on and, and hearing about Endangered. It looks like it's going to be a cool, neat game. And if you get it on your shelves, I think it will check itself out. Uh, pretty quickly if you circulate games at your library or if you use it at your school. Um, And so that's about it. I'm Donald Dennis. And I'm Mark Spector. And you've been listening to Games in Schools and Libraries. You can find out more about the show and the people who create it by heading over to InverseGenius.com where you can also find our other great podcasts like Room Escape Divas, On Board Games, On RPGs, the Inverse Genius Podcast. And we now are happy to announce the Party Gamecast has joined the Inverse Genius group of podcasts as well we love those guys and this podcast has been produced in association with the georgetown county library system thank you for listening